From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 181. Today's show is brought to you by Linode, Squarespace, and PDF Pen from Smile. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Jason Snell. Hello, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. It's good to talk to you again. As always, I know that you are traveling uh, this week, Jason, so I have a traveling-related hashtag Snell Talk question for you, and it comes from Eric. And Eric says, I left my AirPods in a hotel room because they were the same color as the sheets. What is the most expensive thing that you have lost on a trip? I like the uh, the sheet detail there because you can imagine the horror of like, oh, white AirPods case, white sheets, you don't see them, and then you leave. I don't think I've ever lost anything particularly expensive. I, I remember uh, I was on a work trip and I left my uh, – and I was in my 20s. I left my one uh, belt <laughs> in in the room. And I, I, I get home and I realize the belt is not there. And the person I was rooming with, um, one of my coworkers, was still in the hotel room. So I just called him and I said, can you find my belt? It's probably – I told him where it was. And he said, nope. So that was that. I, I don't know whether he kept the belt for himself or is not somebody who can pay attention to uh, looking around a room, but I lost that belt. But I, I have no good tech stories. I, I don't think I've lost anything particularly expensive um, that I can recall on a trip, which is which is good. I'm a little obsessive about making sure that we're uh, packing everything up when we leave a hotel room, especially. Yeah, I've never lost any technology. Um, I've lost articles of clothing. Right, right. I, I mean, I may have done that too. Every now and then, I have a uh, an article of clothing that goes missing, and I wonder if I left it somewhere. But um, I don't know for sure. I can't confirm or deny. You've never like left a Kindle in a seat back pocket or anything like that. Uh, uh, my wife left a Kindle in a seat back pocket on our way back from Hawaii. There you go. But um, that wasn't me. So <laughs> I imagine yeah. that they get that that just happens constantly. I I'm on the I, uh, Nintendo Switch subreddit, and there are constant postings about like either a I lost my Switch on a plane or b I just found a Switch on a plane. They're like every day one of those two things, yeah. and a lot of the time, which is kind of awesome, they end up getting paired together, which is so cool. And you and like there's yes. updates to it, and you see like oh this person found it because there was another subreddit like reader, and I I love seeing that. That's really fun. Here's my travel tip. Mm-hmm. I got a travel tip for you, Mike, which is mm-hmm. this. Don't put anything in the in the seat back pocket mm. ever. Okay. Okay. Don't do it. Put it back in your bag. Put it on your lap. Put it, you know, next to you on the seat maybe, although that's a little bit dicey. Don't put it in that pocket because you'll forget it if it's in that pocket. So just don't do it. Especially it solves that problem. They slide down in the I once dropped on a plane the cap of my apple pencil oh no it went down the seat and i couldn't find it and i was digging around for ages and as we landed it rolled out and hit my foot (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of amazing but i've had those two where little little things that have fallen down and i have to ask for the person behind to fish it out or i have to like try and find a way to get down between the bulkhead and the the seat if i'm in a window seat all of that it's uh yeah that's always fun but i just this is why i i keep my um i keep my little carry-on bag that's under the seat in front of me um accessible and i just transfer my electronics in and out of that as i go rather than i know it's convenient that there's that little pocket there but if you put it in the pocket you're gonna forget it 
If you would like to send in a question to open up the show like Eric did, just send out a tweet into the planet with hashtag SnellTalk, and it will go into a uh, into a document that we can pull from later. It can be about literally anything you want. However you would like for us to start the show, just send in a tweet with the hashtag SnellTalk. And moving to follow-up, we have some uh, of a little HomePod, like little bits and bobs. Um, I saw uh, our good friend and your uh, podcast co-host on Free Agents, Mr. David Sparks, uh, talk about using the HomePod as a Mac speaker. Um, and I saw that you were doing the same, and I kind of wondered why and how that went for you. Well, I mean, why is that every now and then you are at a device that is not the HomePod, and it would be nice if you could control it. And you actually can. You can control it directly from um, iOS or Mac. Uh, there are, you know, you basically bring up the little panel in, con- in control center and it shows all of the remote controllable devices. And if you select a remote controllable device, which is an Apple TV or a HomePod, you can pick a playlist and start playing it and then switch away from it. And it's just, it'll go off and, and now it's doing its own thing. You're not air. That's not airplay. That's this remote control feature. And you can do that on iTunes as well. You got to have the latest versions, but it does work. And, and you can, know, you, you can use it yeah. as a, as a Mac output device too, right? Which is kind of sure. You can set any, any airplay device can be set to do audio to in the sound of system preferences, the sound pane to do audio out uh, to an, any airplay device. And so you can do that. Now, airplay one, remember, has a three second delay. So if you're you need it to be instantaneous audio, you will be disappointed. <laughs> but um, although I think QuickTime will sync up and, and iTunes will sync up like videos and things, they'll they'll put in the delay and they get them to sync up. But if you're doing something that really requires immediacy, like a podcast, that would be a bad idea. Uh, but yeah, it's there. And that, that's, I mean, my example is that I have a little keyboard shortcut for playing and pausing. You use your media keys on the Mac and um, and you're listening to a HomePod in the room that you're in on your Mac. If you've got that setting set to control your HomePod and you press the play pause on your media keys, guess what? The HomePod pauses, which... If you are trying to take a phone call or need to focus or something like that, is, and your hands are on the keyboard, is more convenient than telling you know the lady to stop playing the music. There you go. Uh, Jerry wrote in, Upgrady and Jerry wrote in to say that uh, the podcast playback from Apple Podcasts on your iOS devices and the HomePod, they do actually sync up. So, like, if you were listening to this episode of Upgrade and you're, like, at this point and you pause it and then ask your HomePod to play the Upgrade podcast, it will pick this episode and start it from where you previously were, which is good because otherwise that would suck so bad, right? Like, that would be so dumb. And I'm really pleased that they've done that because it's great. And I have done it with a few shows. It's it's cool. Like, I, I, I like that I can just ask into the ether for my shows to play. It's just a shame that I don't choose to use apple podcasts as my daily podcast app yeah no it's the right thing to do and i'm glad uh, that they've rolled this out this is obviously something that was being worked on i think even though it got rolled out to ios as well that it's uh linked to homepod is great news and if i used the homepod a lot it would be a reason to consider starting to use apple podcasts as my podcast player but Mm -hmm. I, I don't anticipate using the HomePod for podcasts enough for me to switch to Overcast, and I'm going to hold out hope that at some point there's media access in some other way so that uh, Marco Arment can write a, a plug-in 
for services on on HomePod or that there's Siri kit support for media playback so that you can link it to your iPhone or something like that. Yep. But in the base in the base, which is Apple Podcasts, which is the most popular podcast client, that is really great that they they will let you pick up where you left off. And we were talking about comparisons to the Google Home Max. Um, YouTuber Austin Evans published a great review of the HomePod and he compared it against the Google Home Max. And of course, you know, a lot of the speaker stuff is subjective and it's like based upon what you like to hear in the speaker. But um, Austin says that he feels that in comparison to the HomePod, the Google Home Max feels flat. Um, And this is partly uh, because of the fact that it's just got one direction whilst the HomePod has the multi-direction, so it does a better job of filling the room as well as just, to his tastes, sounding better. It has more depth to the audio. So, it's again, this is all very subjective, and you'll find people saying one thing and saying the other thing, and that's part of the problems with uh, reviewing a product like this. It depends on your personal tastes for how you like to hear audio, but that was just a, another one. And it's also, also does great work anyway, but this is a good video where he... Uh, kind of broke down some of his opinions of the two devices in comparison to each other. That sounds good. Um, do you have, Mike, do you have, are you excited to talk about um, the details of how furniture is finished? No, I don't, I don't feel like I need to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> Me the neither. The HomePod leaves rings on some types of furniture. Um, and so do shame. other devices, yeah. apparently. It's and, a shame. Uh, it's a shame that it happens. Yeah. I would be really, really annoyed if this happened to me. It didn't happen yep. to me, um, and such is life. Like we're not, I, we're not I, dismissing yeah. this as like uh, we don't think this is a problem, right? Like it, it is a problem. I, I just am not very interested in going into detail on this discussion. I think I, I wanted to at least mention it, but I, I think I agree with you that um, you know if. This is a known thing, and manufacturers uh, just don't care because obviously people have reported that there are other electronic products that have these uh, silicone feet, and they leave marks on some kinds of wood and some finishes. And if that's true, and nobody has ever cared or said anything before, I mean, it goes back to something we've said a couple of times here, which is Apple's huge, and everybody's paying attention to what Apple does. And so, no, it's not fair. I suppose that uh, a Sonos one does this and nobody cares and a HomePod does this and everybody uh, freaks out, but it doesn't change the fact that if you're the manufacturer of the product and you're aware that this can happen, that you should probably get out in front of it and actually educate yep. people you're rather than just slide it into the market. Yep. I, I oh, The only other thing I've got is an anecdote, which I was thinking of when this was all going on, which is I had a friend who went to UC Santa Cruz and there. um, their mascot is the banana slug, which is a little slug found in the woods. They're quirky at UC Santa Cruz. And she gave me a silicone glow-in-the-dark banana slug as a souvenir. Um, and I put it on my bookshelf. And I came back like a month later. I was moving things around on the top of the bookshelf and discovered that the silicone glow-in-the-dark banana slug had basically like melted into the bookshelf oh my god <laughs> and it and it and it had it had completely removed the finish on on <laughs> in in a shape of the banana slug on the top of the wow. bookshelf and in fact um not too long ago this is a bookshelf i've had since i was a kid and and i don't know well it was actually a long time ago maybe five or ten years ago i actually refinished that bookshelf myself i i 
I know I don't seem like a particularly handy person because I'm not, but I did. I sanded it down. We took off all the all the finish. I sanded it down. I tried to get as much of the banana slug shape out as possible. I uh, I uh, resurfaced it. I refinished it. And guess what? If you know and you look, you can still see the shape of a banana slug on the top of that bookshelf. So I am no stranger to the fact that silicone can behave very strangely with other, uh, other, uh, other kinds of materials. So, um, but but beyond that, yeah, I mean, there are apparently many podcasts where people talk for a long time about furniture, furniture finishes, and all of that. And I, I feel like that's enough for us to say is that if you know if Apple tested this and was aware of it, I know it's maybe not fair, and that other devices do it, but. Um, if they're aware, like I would like Apple to step up and be more proactive about it, like they were with things like scratches, micro abrasions, and things mm-hmm. on iPhones. Um, but also, uh, I, I think we all have to be aware that this is this is the consequence of Apple being uh, so huge as a company and has captured so much of the imagination that um, anything that happens with an Apple product that anybody has a complaint about will instantly be magnified to the worst thing in the world, and that's also true. I have a couple of pieces of follow-out. Uh, the first, if you enjoy our Mike at the Movies segments, every now and then uh, a friend will uh, say to me, hey, Mike, I want to watch a movie with you. And then we do little standalone episodes that go into the Incomparable feed at theincomparable.com slash Mike. Well, this time, the friend of mine who came to me was Dan Provost of Studio Neat and a thoroughly considered podcast on Relay FM. Um, and me and Dan watched uh, 1992's A Few Good Men, um, mm-hmm. which... I will not say whether I liked or did not like the movie because I think that's part of the fun. Um, but it's a great discussion, including a real weird 10 minute tangent at the end where we talk about those masterclass course things. Have you seen those? You ever seen those like huge celebrities teaching you about screenwriting or cooking or whatever? They're called masterclass. We talk about oh, those no. as well because uh, that's like a whole okay. thing at the end of the episode. Okay. But yeah, I won't, I won't ask if you liked it or not, but I will ask um, could you handle the truth? Do you know what? I, when that moment happened, I was like, oh, that's that movie. That's where that's, where that's from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't uh, that's know. I, that's I didn't I know. Because everyone knows that line. Yeah. You know? Right. Exactly. I guess we should also mention there is another Mike at the Movies on this podcast coming soon. And uh, if you want to study for that, you should watch Aliens. Yep. Aliens. Jason convinced me after my horrific fear of watching Alien. Um, that Aliens was was not so scary and more action-y. And I think <laughs> we're going to talk about that on March sure. 5th, but we'll confirm that uh, probably next week. But yeah, March right. 5th, uh, we're going to watch Aliens, which is the sequel to Alien, which I have been told is not as scary by many people, actually, not just it's, you. It's an, action, it's an action movie and not a horror movie primarily. It's There's scary bits in it, but it is... It is uh, James Cameron movie. We watched the Terminator movies. It is a it is an eighties sci fi action movie in that kind of vein. So I think okay. you'll get a very different feel from it. Good because I'm a little scaredy cat and uh, I don't need more scary monsters. Thank you very much. Um, I also wanted to do a little bit of promotion for a new show on Relay FM that I'm co-hosting called Playing for Fun. Uh, it is a show uh, between me and Tiffany Almond where we talk about video games that we love. Now I really really want people to go and try this show out because we think it's different to a lot of video game shows. It's different to a lot of podcasts. In we only pick games that we both love, and we only talk about the things that we love in those games. We don't talk about the bad stuff. Uh, we don't talk about criticisms. We don't even really review the games. 
It's just two best friends that enjoy something and they just talk about the things that they enjoy. Uh, We're looking at doing an episode every month. The first episode is about Super Mario Odyssey. The reason I really want people to go and check it out is we are obviously trying to be very positive in the show and Every, I've heard from so many people that have listened that they really, really enjoyed it. So I think that this is a show that people will like. Maybe even if you don't care about video games. I mean, I hear this with the pen addict every now and then. There, we have a lot of pen addict listeners that don't like pens. They just like to hear two people just talk about something that they love, um, which is a little bit quirky. So also playing for fun has the, uh, sorry to everybody else on Relay FM, the best artwork and the best music yeah, it does. that we've ever put together. Um it's what it's absolutely wonderful. Oh, by the way, if you have the Relay FM app um, installed on your devices, we have a sticker pack, and there is a sticker of an animated Mike and Tiff high fiving, which is so good. Um, so that's in there if you've if you haven't checked out the sticker pack in a while, we've got a couple of extra ones in there. So please go and check out Playing for Fun. Um, just listen to the first episode, and it might be something you like. It might be something you don't like. But I have a sneaking suspicion that I think that a lot of people will like this show because we're, we're trying our best to just make something happy and nice. And uh, stay tuned for the new show, uh, Playing for Fun or Not, in which John, I talked to John Syracuse <laughs> about what's wrong with all the games that you like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm going to hear a lot from from John. Uh, I've already heard a few little bits here and there. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be criticized, Mike. Turns out. Remember that. Today's show is brought to you in part by our friends over at Linode. With Linode, you will have access to a suite of powerful hosting options. With prices starting at just $5 a month, you can be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in under a minute. And when you do, you will have access to industry-leading performance with native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 10 data centers now that are spread across the world, meaning that you will be able to serve your customers quicker than ever before. Linode have an API that will easily allow you to automate tasks or develop custom applications in the cloud. And if it's your bag, everything is manageable via the command line or via their super easy-to-use backend system. It's very, very cool. So you can just go in and very easily uh, manage things as you want in their intuitive control panel. All of Linode's pricing tiers feature hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups and node balances. And their price to get started is so cheap. For $5 a month, you can get a one gigabyte of RAM virtual server. They offer prices, um, they offer plans, I should say, going all the way up to 16 gigabytes of RAM and beyond. Like it is huge, huge stuff you can get going with there if you want to. But that one gigabyte of RAM plan, you can get four months for free on that one. Because if you go to linode.com slash upgrade, you'll be supporting the show and getting a $20 credit towards any Linode plan. So you can use it for any plan. But if you want to try it out, you can use the one gigabyte of RAM plan. And that is four free months. With a seven-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose. So once again, linode.com, that's L-I-N-O-D-E.com slash upgrade, where you can learn more, sign up, take advantage of that $20 credit, or use the promo code UPGRADE2018 at checkout. Our thanks to Linode for their support of this show and FM. All of my servers for all of my things are on Linode. There you go. All of them. Guess the Jason Snell uh, seal. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. I give I said, them I give them money, uh, not as much money as uh, what I get back because it is a great deal, and uh, that's where Six Colors and the Incomparable live. Yeah, I, I like this the, the Jason Snell seal of thumbs up. This is a yes. This is a new it's it's a picture. Brand. 
It's a picture of a seal <laughs> giving a thumbs up, which is interesting because they don't have thumbs, and somehow it happens. I don't know. Uh, the Jason Snell seals do. All right, it's time for Upstream. Uh, surprisingly to everybody, Carpool Karaoke has been renewed for a second season. Well, congratulations to them. <laughs> it feels like nobody was really excited about it. It was a critical flop, and I, I can't imagine it got a lot of eyeballs, but it's been renewed for a second season. My only thinking on this is they can get a second season of Carpool Karaoke together and up and going quicker than they can get any of their other deals up and going. Yes. So they're just going to have and some stuff that's there. I will float a theory. My theory okay. is that if... You are launching a video service. One of the things that you're going to need, we've talked about it a little bit, is a catalog. Mm -hmm. And what the people watching Carpool Karaoke today are doing it through Apple Music. It's not. It's not the same. It's not the same thing. So I feel like maybe you you get this the show spun up. Uh, maybe they like it internally. Maybe they think it's going to have some appeal once they get it in front of other people. It's not that expensive. So you keep it rolling. And it means that when you launch your Apple video service, you're al already going to have one and probably two seasons of Carpool Karaoke ready to watch. And it adds more to their catalog. So, you know, and, and the theory is maybe when people are signing up and trying out the Apple video service, those people will then try out the show and like it. And uh, and so why not keep it around to fill up the catalog and to, you know, potentially catch the eye of people who are uh, yeah. who are signing up? That's my that's my theory. So I mean, I would expect that also they've done a lot of the groundwork to, for this show, so it's probably cheaper for them to just renew this and let it run and do another season than having to like maybe try and find something else. You never know; they might be able to turn it around. We'll see. Um, yeah. Irrespective of bad reviews, Cloverfield Paradox pulled in five million viewers in the first seven days on Netflix. So if you remember, this was the show. This is the movie, I should say, that Netflix launched. Uh, in a big surprise during the Super Bowl. Uh, five million in seven days seems like a good number, but it's worth comparing to Bright, which was the Will Smith alien police movie uh, on Netflix, which also received bad reviews. Uh, that netted 11 million viewers um, in, in in its first, I think, couple of weeks. So that is a big difference. However, it is worth noting that Bright is one of Netflix's biggest successes to date, um, according to Variety. So... I don't know. They paid a lot of money. I think like fifty million for Cloverfield Paradox, uh, but it was a great marketing move. So maybe it yeah. was worth it in the yep. end. Five million is not nothing, you know. So it's it's a good stunt, and yep. it gives them uh, if uh, either they can learn not to ever do that again, or it gives them an idea of what a baseline is, and then they can try again. And keep in mind, it's still being marketed, and it's uh, got name recognition. And it stays in Netflix's catalog, so people will keep watching it. And I'll I'll put the footnote here. These are Nielsen ratings because Nielsen is trying desperately yes, to provide people measurements of what Netflix does because Netflix does not provide its own ratings and doesn't need to. So this is an estimate based on a panel uh, uh, sample put together by by Nielsen. But I, I'm not surprised that Bright did better than than Cloverfield, given given Will Smith. Will quite Smith. frankly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean th th that's a very good point. Like Will Smith is an international huge draw, like and will remain so probably for many years to come. Um, Amazon, YouTube, Verizon, and Twitter are currently in bidding for NFL Thursday night streaming rights. Uh, Facebook was in the running but pulled out. Um, I think Twitter had this last year, right? 
was it Twitter or was it Amazon or did they split it? I know that they've they've both done some of this stuff in the past, um, but they're all currently in the running to get some of the streaming rights for Thursday night football. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not super exciting in the sense that it's not like they're not broadcasting it. In fact, this is a this is a rights package that's being split multiple ways. Where yep. it's on the NFL's cable channel, then it has a broadcast partner, which is going to be Fox this year, I think. And um, and then there's a streaming partner, so it's it's not exclusive at all. In fact, it'll be shown on cable and broadcast and streaming. So mm-hmm. still, it's something worth experimenting with. And we go from live sports to sports drama. Um, Apple is developing a show based on the life and career of NBA star Kevin Durant. Uh, it will be called Swagger, produced by Brian Gazer and Ron Howard's Imagine Television. This feels like an Eddie Q joint. It does. It's Brian Grazer, by the way, but you know it doesn't. Oh, okay. Nobody cares except his family. Uh, but it's a <laughs> hi to the Grazers. Um, they uh, it does feel very much like the we're going to do a what was it Doctor Dre uh, docudrama mm-hmm. too. Um, whatever. It's it's not. I'm not a big NBA fan. I think Kevin Durant is an interesting guy. Um, this is what I would say is this goes to a lot of what we're talking about about making sure that Apple's uh, service isn't just a bunch of sci-fi shows. Yep. So here we go. We've got a show that is about the life of a black man. It appeals to sports fans, presumably. Like, it does a lot of things that a lot of these other shows probably don't do in terms of uh, appeal. So uh, diversifying Apple's offerings is a good thing to do. I think it's a smart move, even if this is not a show that I'm super interested in because I don't really care about the NBA. I think it's important for Apple to try and have a spread of stuff in the pipeline so that uh, Apple Video has broad appeal. And so this is another one of those. I do the, the whole like the life of an active player does feel a little weird to me but at the same time like he's you know the nba fan base is strong and uh, there's it probably it's easy to view this and just assume it's something um like silly and ego boosting but it's also entirely possible that this has got some really great people behind it and it's going to be great so um good for apple to keep on adding different pieces of this puzzle because they want to have they want to have lots of different stuff on offer and not just like we were worried about. Well, what we have is we have lots of diversity here. There's the sci-fi show from J.J. Abrams, and there's a sci-fi show from Steven Spielberg, and there's a sci-fi show from Ron Moore. Those are totally different white guys with sci-fi shows, so what do you want? And instead, no, they're going to do a lot of different stuff. It's good. Um, and also Facebook is creating an eight-episode docuseries about NASCAR star Daryl Bubba Wallace Jr. Uh, Bubba is famous for being the first African-American person to drive in the Daytona 500 since 1969, and this series follows and has followed his story into doing that. Uh, this is part of a push that Facebook is doing for their platform Facebook Watch, um, which they're really trying to develop a lot of content for um, for example, people know that I'm a wrestling fan. Uh, they have worked with the WWE to create a weekly episodic show that's been going on for the last couple of months, which has been pretty interesting. Uh, but I've not been able to watch it because Facebook Watch isn't available outside of the US right now, which is bonkers. I don't understand why, mm. like, if you're creating your own content, 
you would only you would region restrict it. That doesn't make any sense. Like, what are the that's, rights you're yeah. making it? Um, so that's really weird. It's very very weird. Um, but the WWE, I mean, just going into specifics, they have been rebroadcasting it for their outside of the US viewers on their own streaming platform. It's just really strange. But yeah, so that's something that Facebook is yeah. doing as well. Um, I will say just before we get out of this segment, and there are absolutely zero spoilers, but Black Panther is awesome. Uh, I saw it this I, weekend. I look Loved forward it. to it. I, I've been traveling, so I, I haven't had a chance love to it. see it. I think so you're I'm looking love forward it. to it. So yeah, so it's a really, really great movie. I mean, I don't need to be the person to tell you that, right? Like I think everybody is universally saying this, but yes. um, it, you don't even need to be a superhero movie fan to like this movie. So It's great. It was, yeah, me and Nadine went to see it yesterday. We really liked it, so it's great. All right, so uh, Twitter has killed their Mac app, which is oh. very interesting. <laughs> uh, they posted two tweets, which is funny to me that they posted two tweets. It's like, can't you just put us all in one tweet? But, like, whatever. Mm. Um, they're saying, we're focusing... This, is, this was buried in the Friday news cycle. Uh, we're focusing our efforts on a great Twitter experience that's consistent across platforms. So starting today... The Twitter for Mac app will no longer be available for download and in 30 days will no longer be supported. For the full Twitter experience on the Mac, visit Twitter on the web. Now, I don't necessarily want to go into like a ton of detail about this specific thing, but kind of like a way that uh, what this could potentially mean. But like there are so many problems with this announcement like for example we're focusing on efforts on a great twitter experience that's consistent across platforms yeah i don't know if you need to remove an application to do that um i mean you may as well just say we only use the web everywhere right that is you know, silly well that well exactly right like they're not removing their android and ios apps so far as i can tell they're do just they have a windows app? Mac app there is a windows 10 app i would not put money on it surviving but it's possible because windows has a touch you know component on a lot of the you know and it's a windows 10 app maybe they feel like it's basically their mobile experience so it's a touch experience but i also wouldn't put money on it on it surviving either because what the heck is going on here it's sad this is you know they bought tweety and um then they kind of ripped that apart and made this twitter mac app that was i used it for a very long time but it was lagging behind uh for a long time it didn't get support for the longer tweets that everybody else did um the tweet that they sent out themselves you know it's double speak it's all ridiculous um it's focusing on a consistent platform first off consistent doesn't mean good it just means that it's consistent um also i laughed when you said they killed it because i mean you could argue that the the time of death was called the body hit the floor whatever (laughs) but was it was it already dead pretty much already dead before this and i it's it's a shame uh, it's another example of Twitter's sort of mismanagement of everything it does. But fortunately, Mac users who want to use Twitter in an app can still use Twitterific and Tweetbot. Those still survive for now, unless t- Twitter decides that it really just wants to push everybody off of uh, the Mac and into a web page. But Twitter's, you know, I, I complained about it. I, I basically referred to Twitter's web experience as garbage. And I heard from people who are like, it's fine for me, which is like, I'm glad it's fine for you. It's terrible for me. I would never, I would not use Twitter remotely as much as I do if I had to just open Safari or, you know, and and go to Twitter.com. Like, I don't like anything about how the Twitter web experience works. 
And so uh, I hope I don't ever have to try. So uh, Twitterific is currently on sale at seven ninety nine for the Mac. <laughs> uh, you can also Shocker. buy Tweetbot for the Mac. They're, they're both really good apps. It is worth noting, because um, I remember this. I haven't seen a lot of people talk about this. I assume it's just not been worth mentioning. But, I mean, we spoke about Twitter Twitter 4.0 for the Mac on uh, episode 70 of Upgrade. Because oh, this was an application that Twitter had made by a third-party development studio, if you remember. And then yeah, they or, kind of put it out into they, the world. Or they, bu- or they bought it and then they, they paid somebody to update it. It's unclear. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But yeah. this was like a whole separate thing. Like they had a Mac app, which sucked and was really like dying. Then they introduced this new one, which was new but missing a lot of features. And then it kind of just never got updated. So right. it's a bit of a nightmare. TweetDeck still exists. That's still a Twitter property. Anyway. This is all just to set up uh, a conversation that I want to have with you about what, if anything, this says about the Mac as a platform. So, in your opinion, is it a concern that a company like Twitter would pull Mac app support? Like, does it signal something? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, what the message here is it's not worth developing a custom app for non-mobile platforms. That's that's how I read it. Is it's still worth it to build iOS apps and Android apps um, because the app experience is uh, is so good, and you want to have you want to be on the uh, on the screen on the home screen with your icon and all of that. You want to participate in that, so you will. But that on the desktop, if you're one of these services, especially. Um, you know, you've got your website, just kick everybody to the website. People on you know, Macs can just load it in their, the web page in their browser and it's fine. Now I, I disagree with that, but, um, that is the truth that if you're paying for a custom app to develop it and keep it up to date and you look at how many people use, I mean, everybody who uses a Mac probably uses a smartphone or at least a huge percentage of them. And I think their argument is, look, mobile is where our stuff's being consumed. Mobile is where we get the best return on our investment. The Mac is a very small platform. Why would we spend the time on it? You can just use the web. And and the Mac ends up falling back into this kind of uh, a give up zone where it's just it's not worth it. Um, and, and you go to the lowest common denominator, which is the web. And, you know, we're mentioning the Windows app. You know, I don't know how good it is, but that's probably going to stick around because it's on their universal platform. If it if it does, that's going to be the reason is that it's a it is kind of a mobile app because it's a Windows 10, you know, with the it's not it's not a traditional desktop app like the Mac app. Was. It's also it, apparently it looks... available on HoloLens, which I, I kind of love the idea of that is. <laughs> You know, you're just reading Twitter and your big glasses in the sky. That seems like a fun thing to it's do. It's the future, Mike. Yeah, Twitter pushed into your face constantly and you can read it It's on in the, the cloud if you're so, outside looking up at a cloud. I guess the other problem with this, going back to the Mac, is it also signals something to users as well, right? Like if you are, you've, you've bought your Mac and you go to the Mac App Store and you look for the Twitter app and there isn't one. Like, do you think that that for a user of a of a of the Mac, do you think that that says something too? Like you're like, oh, why isn't it here? Well, I mean, I think it says something, but you could argue the same thing about Facebook, right? There's no Facebook app for the Mac. Mm-hmm. It, Facebook is a website that has a mobile app, and that's sort of the the paradigm. And what happened with Twitter is that twi- this this has to do with Twitter's history, right? Twitter became successful in a lot of ways on the backs 
of third-party apps, which they then pushed to the side and said, no, no, we are, you know, our website and our app are the most important. But the third-party Twitter clients is a big thing in the early development of Twitter, huge part of the early development of Twitter. Um, Facebook never did that, right? Facebook never thought of itself that way. Facebook was a website. Um, and then they built their own mobile app to go with their website. And so, you know, I think part of it is just it's a function of where these services started. Um, nobody, or at least not very many people, think that Facebook is worse off because they don't have a, you know, a Mac app. What would the Facebook for Mac app be? It's actually kind of weird to think about it because Facebook does sort of feel like a website to me a little more than, than Twitter does, where it feels like a messaging service. But yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. It, it's it's I, I services like this. I mean, it's a fair question about do they need to have a native client? And for me, like people complain about Slack being this Electron app. So it's basically like a web app wrapped in a little app wrapper. But Slack has made the effort of putting it in an app wrapper. And I don't mind that. Like I know some people really it really bothers them. But it's like I'm very glad I have a Slack app. I wouldn't use Slack as much on my Mac if I had to just open web pages in my web browser that were showing Slack instances. I wouldn't use... I, first off, my web browser is like a multi-tool. So if I want to keep Twitter around, this is always the thing where people made like use like Fluid or apps like that to make single site browsers, which are like little you know browser apps you click on and it just loads one web page. And I always found those really weird to use and I never really liked them. Like I don't like that. And if I have to go to your, remember to go to your website, like I'm not going to keep your website open all the time. Sorry, Facebook. And then I forget to go there because it's not in my, it's not in my site. It's not in my use. I'm looking at what apps I'm running and things that are in the menu bar and things like that. And I know that there are apps that will do that with Facebook notifications and things like that. Facebook's just never been as important to me so that I haven't cared about it so much. But um, Slack's a good example where the presence of an app it makes a difference in in my geography, at least when I'm using the Mac, that I, I don't want to have to remember to either like you keep a window open. I don't want that window. I'm not somebody who keeps windows full of tabs open. <laughs> I, I, I keep windows open when I'm working on them uh, in the browser. I don't leave them open. You can't really minimize them because if you minimize them and then you click a link somewhere else, it automatically opens up that minimized window and loads a new tab, which is also infuriating. Um, and so I basically stop using those sites regularly and just go when I'm reminded, oh yeah, Facebook is a thing that exists um, when I'm on my Mac. So um, I think it, I think there's a, at least as one Mac user, I can say that there's a level of um, brain space occupied by apps that are not occupied by web pages. And so that for me, that's the difference. You mentioned Electron, and a lot of our mutual friends get really upset about Electron apps. Why is that? Like, what is Electron, and why do people get so mad about Electron apps on the Mac? I think I am not a web developer, so I'm not comfortable saying much more than saying Electron is a framework to develop Mac or to develop web apps. Basically, mm -hmm. it's one framework, and um, it allows you to create something that's got kind of app-like functionality, and then you wrap it in uh, an app wrapper, but it's using web uh, web-based technologies to build that thing. So it's like non-native feeling. 
applications is what mostly well, comes out I mean, of it. What is, it depends on your your definition of what is native. Yeah, um, yeah, okay. Some stuff feels some stuff feels real. It doesn't uh-huh. like there are apps, there are web apps with wrappers that always felt like I was literally, you know, you if you scroll a little too fast or in the wrong place, you are you reveal that you're really in a web browser, right? And that never is a good feeling as a as a Mac user, I would say, to suddenly realize that this is all just kind of a lie. But um, the big place you see it is in things like the preferences and the menu bar where there's nothing because all your preferences and controls are actually like in the window. Um, and, and that's because it's actually a web page, but, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, I don't, I don't get as upset as some people do about this because I think there are different classes of apps. And if a web-based app, uh, in an app wrapper works more or less like a desktop app, I'm probably fine with it. Um, if you tried to give me, um, Final Cut Pro in a web browser, I would probably revolt. Because I think a lot of people get concerned about th- about stuff like Electron and Twitter killing Mac apps as like that there's a problem with the platform, right? That like if people are not developing native applications for the Mac is an indication that the Mac is a is dying, right? I think that is the 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 fear. I, and I I would say I don't think I would phrase it as that the Mac is dying, but the Mac is a very small computing platform, and it's um, smaller now than iOS, Android, and Windows, right? <laughs> so it's um, if you're going to choose, and mobile is so important and growing, and so if you're going to choose, you're going to choose mobile first off. And at that point, it's iOS and Android. And the web browser's right there. A lot of these things have web services. To build a, there's an argument that to build a custom Mac app, you need to build it because you have a clear benefit in building a native app. And not everything is going to have a clear benefit to having a native app. And if your market isn't so large that it's worth it just because you have so many customers who will be happier. Uh, if it, if the market's not that big, then I understand the business decision there. I don't think it necessarily means that all Mac apps are going away and that the Mac is dying, but I do think that it shows that in the priority list, the Mac is way down versus especially mobile. So let's talk about Project Marzipan as a refresher for those maybe not keeping track. Uh, Project Marzipan is a rumored, uh, mostly by uh, Mark Gurman right now, Project that is going to be unveiled probably at WWDC this year, which will allow for developers of iOS apps to port their applications or to more easily develop their applications for the Mac. That's kind of the the understood wisdom of this rumor right now. Would the ability for developers of iOS apps to be able to bring their applications to Mac, is that better or worse for this perception problem? Uh, uh, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think porting, I think the problem with it is, is that depending on how it would be done, it might feel not like a Mac app. I would hope that the way that it would work is that Apple was designing it so that, you know, the pitch is going to be, you can make a great iOS app and a great Mac app without, um, as much extra work and not, 
you can click a couple of boxes and your iOS app shows up on the Mac because that's a very different kind of thing. And that that may be the reality regardless of what Apple says, but I would imagine that Apple would rather pitch it as being, you know, you get to your stuff that would go over here now comes over here and you can have a real menu bar. And, you know, that would be nice to see uh, them do it that way. It's a question of, of how much work people would put in and if they would put in the work. I mean, I think it is a good question about whether Twitter would bother to take their iOS app and bring it back to the Mac, like for all the reasons we've already said. And Facebook might be the same way, although who knows, Facebook might have a different calculation and say, this is great. We can get on the Mac in a way that gives us more access to those people in notification center and whatever when they're at their desks. So let's do it. But they might also just make the same decisions that Twitter has made, basically, and say it's not worth it to us to do that. Um, as a Mac user, there is the risk that all of a sudden you're you're basically, yay, you get more apps, but boo, they all look like iOS apps that have just been ported to the Mac. And what's better for the Mac in the long run? I don't know. I, I feel like there are a lot of apps that need to be native Mac apps, but if something like Marzipan lets iOS developers get to the Mac more easily with things that are decent then um, maybe that's a good thing. Um, it does make you ask, what's the future of the Mac? And is Apple heading to a place where, um, as we have talked about many times before, that there is a kind of a hybrid that ends up being the final destination for Apple users where, um, you know, you have things that look, that, that like there's one OS. And if you're in a desktop or laptop context, it feels more like the Mac, but in the end, it's just one OS. That This would be a step in that direction too, I, I, I'm afraid. Because it's going to be great if we could get like overcast for the Mac, right? Or I don't know, like um, I'm looking at my phone right now. Well, yeah, I mean, what lowering, I lowering the barrier to get apps that uh, are not worth building entirely for the Mac on their own, but would be worth building... Uh, you know, doing a little bit of extra work to bring them over from iOS to the Mac. I think that's a nice idea, and we can think of some apps that could do it. Uh, the question is, how many of those are there? How how high is that bar? How much do any of these iOS developers care about opening up the Mac as another market for them? And that's, I think that's a serious question. Like, is the Mac just too small a market or is the power of Apple's platforms and saying, look, this gets you across all the Apple platforms. Is that enough to, to put in the extra time and money to do it? Because there's like something where I, you know, I, I use a bunch of applications that have a Mac app, right? Something like Fantastical or Airmail. And I can't imagine that they would continue to build the Mac app still. Right, like I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a lot of uh, more indie developers kind of retire their Mac apps in favor for the one true cross-platform application. I I think what I would say is if this is done right by Apple, what it would allow something like um, like Flexibits to do with Fantastical is build one Fantastical that would still feel like the Mac version on the Mac. But it would be easier for them to develop it because they would be using a lot more of the same stuff as on iOS, right? That's the yeah. ideal. Is not a you know the 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 scary one is iWork, right? Where Apple had iWork for Mac, and then they then they moved to uh, sort of a unified 
iWork that synced and that was similar on iOS and Mac. And from the Mac user's perspective, it was a huge feature regression, right? A lot of things just stopped working. They disappeared. Features vanished because it was kind of a new version of the iWork apps. That's the fear is that if you get Fantastical... Uh, trading their separate Mac and iOS versions for this new kind of combo version that uh, from the perspective of the Mac user, you just lost all of these features and now it seems weird and like you've got an iOS app in a window. I was also thinking about photos as another example where like it is maybe more of an iOS app in its feel and execution than a Mac app. And it does some really weird stuff on the Mac. Like the fact that you can't really ease it. You, in most applications, you can't drag a photo from photos right. into another application. And it's like, well, but why though? You know, and that would be my personal concern is that these applications, whilst feeling native, would have these things to them, which clearly indicate that they are a Mazimhan app. And then mm. my kind of feeling on that would be would the people that hate Electron applications, are they not just going to feel the same about Marzipan applications? And what are the, you know, what are the further implications of something like that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't think your average Mac user looks at photos and says, oh my God, this is not a Mac app. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's got, it's got quirks. But that comes back to what I was saying before is it's that's about how it's implemented by sure, Apple sure. and then by the developers. And there'll probably be a wide variety of them. But what from Apple's perspective, the other thing, and I'd say I, I got to be honest, from a user perspective, too, one of the advantages of this is that when you go to your Mac from your iOS device and remember, there are way more iOS devices than there are Macs in service. But then you go to a Mac and you use Photos or you use pages, or you use numbers, and it's kind of familiar. It's not the same, right. and is but that it's more kind of familiar. Really, in the long run, that the applications have a f- to a, Apple? Even, even more familiarity yeah. than ever before, right, across the entire yep. suite. I, yeah. think, I think so. I think that is more important to Apple, to be honest. So when you look at something like this rumor of Project Marzipan, do you think that this is a likelihood? Do you think that this is where, where Apple's going to go with Mac development? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, I I think one of the great mysteries, because they have so many choices in front of them, I think one of the great mysteries we have is what is happening with iOS, Mac, and the future of Apple's platforms. Because we've been saying for a while now, they're one company trying to do two separate consumer platforms at scale. Let's leave tvOS and watchOS aside for a minute because they're kind of iOS and kind of not. Yeah. But just Mac and iOS, that one of those is really hard, as we're probably going to talk about in a little bit. Two of them is even harder. And so you start to say to yourself, all right, we built up all this user base, all these developers on the one side. How do we make it easier for them to be on the other side too? How do we lower the barriers there? How do we make them more similar? And I think that's a natural thing. I don't see how Apple can keep the Mac and iOS as separate as they are now in the long run. That doesn't mean that I'm saying that fundamentally the Mac is going to go away or just become kind of an iOS hybrid. But I think regardless of what Apple chooses, they're going to need to make the flow back and forth um, easier, 
because it just makes sense. Uh, it simplifies a lot of things if they're able to do that. But they do have those those decisions to make that are incredibly hard decisions, momentous decisions, and maybe they've made them. And this is part of the slow cranking toward there, or maybe they haven't, and they're leaving their options open. Like, like we said, you know, can you imagine a future version of either iOS or a next generation operating system? Because iOS is even ten years old now, um, of uh, something that looks like iOS when it's on a tablet or a phone, and looks like the Mac when it's on a desktop or a laptop, and you know. Is that better than just maintaining macOS code base and iOS code base for them to get there? And does that happen in two years or five years or 10 years? And, you know, that is why they pay the Apple uh, vice presidents the big bucks, I think, because that's a hard question. Yeah, you mentioned about the issues of developing for all these platforms. And that actually leads into another report from Mark Gurman talking about Apple slowing down its software development cycle, uh, which we're going to talk about in just a second after we thank Squarespace for their support of this show. Use the offer code UPGRADE at checkout and you will get yourself 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea. You can make your next move with Squarespace. No matter what type of website you want to build, no matter what type of project it is, Squarespace has the tools that you need. You have the ability to grab a unique domain name. You can take advantage of beautiful award-winning templates to make your content sing. You can have it all backed up by 24-7 customer support and so much more. They are the all-in-one platform to help you put your thing online, no matter what it is, whether you want to make a blog or maybe you want to make a site for your web, for your band, maybe you want to make a site for your business, maybe you want to make a site for your wedding, maybe you want to make a portfolio, maybe you want to make an online store. They have all of the functionality that you need to do any of those and so many more because Squarespace is really flexible. There's nothing to install. There are no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. They've got you covered on all of that. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month and you can sign up for a free trial today with no credit card required just by going to squarespace.com. Use the offer code UPGRADE at checkout and you will get 10% off your first purchase once you decide to sign up for a plan. You'll also be showing your support for UPGRADE when you do this. That's the code UPGRADE for 10% off. Our thanks to Squarespace for their continued support of this show and Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So, it has been reported uh, by Mark Gurman that Apple is going to be moving their software development to a two-year cycle rather than a one-year cycle. Um, I think he specifically calls out iOS, but it could as easily be everything. Um, you know, And what this means is not that Apple will be releasing versions of iOS every two years, um, that they will be continuing to release versions of iOS every year, but internally they will have more flexibility over what features get included and which don't because features will be developed over a two-year cycle. And if they can make it for one year, they'll be included. If not, there's more time to develop for them. So taking this as red, let's just take this as what the case is going to be. Jason, do you think that slowing down development like this and extending it to a two-year development cycle is a good thing, a possible thing? Do you think that this is going to be going on inside of Apple and do you think it's going to be good for them? Sounds like they're already doing this, right? It, I mean, we've seen yeah. we've we've seen this. Um, not only things like we, we heard about iOS uh, features for iPad um, for iOS 10, right? Mm-hmm. 
And then, then we heard, well, okay, they're not going to ship in 10, but they may ship a little bit later. And they ended up shipping in 11. So I feel like this has already been going on. At least we have some examples of Apple sort of having things. And then, and then recently it's been Apple having things that are announced that they don't ship, like uh, messages. I'm, you know, I'm messages in the cloud. Um, we've had, you know, there, have been, there have been a, a bunch of others that ship later. Apple Pay Cash is another example. And uh, so I think that this is healthy. I think this is, as um, Stephen Sanofsky, who used to run Windows, wrote a tweet storm that became a Medium post. He he views this as being this giant machine that Apple has had to build in order to ship consumer software at, at massive scale. This is the machine correcting and reacting to the issues that are going on. And then, you know, you adapt and, and it takes time. Um, but but you adapt as you go, and it seems I mean it seems really prudent to me, doesn't it? I mean the idea that yeah, if something's not ready, don't ship it. And I also think it is a recognition that the world we live in today is very different in terms of mobile platforms than it was five years ago. There was a time when it felt like Apple and Google were in an arms race, and the if they one of them didn't react to the other's moves it would be all over. And I feel like that is not true anymore. That, you know, Apple is going to be here and Google's going to be here. Android's not going anywhere. iOS is not going anywhere. So there is, it feels almost like a, like a disarmament, <laughs> de-escalation sort of thing that the priority now is not throw as many new features in as possible to keep up with the other guy. It is do the things you need to do strategically, plan in advance, make sure that the things you want to do, like face ID is a great ex- uh, great idea, um, make sure those happen, but also have the flexibility to drop things out and push them back because we're no longer on the kind of footing we used to be, if you're Apple, you say this, uh, in terms of having to drive this stuff in there. And now our scale has gotten to the point where the bugs that we used to be able to kind of just whistle and keep moving on about we can't anymore because we're too big and as i mentioned earlier when we were talking about furniture finishing uh everybody's paying attention we're huge every the smallest issue is going to get called out and so your priorities have to change and uh and so i think this is i think this is healthy um the details of german's story i mean it sounds like that's you know he says that's what's going on internally we've seen hints of it already and externally we may never hear about it externally it may just still be the same process of here are our features and some of them don't ship right away and the the features that got pushed to ios 13 or whatever you know we just don't hear about those those that may you know have already been the case and will continue to be the case and it will be hard to actually um see it from the outside. Apple may not change its outside messaging about this at all. They may not say, oh, we're slowing down development and we're working on bug fixes. They may just not do, right? I mean, there's no reason they have to sell, hey, did you know that our software has bugs and that we're fixing them? Like, is that their marketing message? Probably not. uh, We'll come back to that in a second, but there's something I wanted to mention. You said about how, like... um so, uh, uh, iPad software development feels like it's been on a two-year cycle, and I think you're yeah. right. But I don't. I would expect, especially you know, looking at this Gurman report, that that wasn't necessarily accepted as a good thing. Where maybe now internally in the company, they're allowing for things to take longer instead of things being late. 
and held back. I think that things not being completed yeah. in time was maybe being frowned upon, where it now is maybe being a little bit more encouraged as a let's take time to get this right as opposed to right. let's rush for the release. Well, I'm reminded of my reaction to the to the multitasking features in iOS 11, which was to feel like, oh, this feels really polished. Like, it's very well thought out. And, you know, there, there are critici- criticisms of the multitasking in iOS 11 that, that um, some people have. But it felt like part of a larger whole and... Um, you know all these different aspects of it: the the uh, multitasking screen, the dock, uh, a bunch of different stuff went into that. And I I think of it now, and I think, well, what would have what would it have looked like if they had pushed and gotten it into iOS 10 or iOS 10.2? And maybe it would have been the same, but maybe it would have not been. Maybe it would have been a little more haphazard, a little less kind of really well integrated and thought out because they were rushing to get it in a particular version. And maybe that feature benefited from getting kicked all the way back a year. Um, if that's indeed what happened, that was, that was sort of what we were hearing, but it may, may or may not be true. But um, so I'm okay with it. Like I'm, I'm really okay with Apple saying uh, we have our priorities, but we're also not going to ship something that's no good. And, I think that's also an acceptance of this reality, like I mentioned, that Steven Stanofsky talked about, which is the the fact is Apple standards have to change because of the size. It's not just because of the scrutiny put on them, although that's part of it, but because of the size of their market and the size of the platforms that they're supporting. The iOS is enormous and things that you could get away with nine years ago, seven years ago, you can't get away with anymore. From this year, or this past year, this past 12 months, um, Apple has taken a hit publicly, you know, from a perception perspective about software quality. And this, you know, ranging from root bugs to autocorrect issues to the battery problems to, you know, there's been a bunch of different things, right, that have occurred. There's been delays on software things like messages in the cloud and you would expect that one of the reasons that they're changing their internal practices is because their external perception has changed and they're starting to get a bit of a reputation for things being a bit less than perfect. Now, the last time that I can really remember like a big perception kind of on a mainstream perspective of this was uh, Apple Maps with iOS 6 or whatever it was. You know, like that people will be like, oh, you know, we're really mad about Apple Maps and people were very upset. Um, and this obviously le- led to Forstall being ousted at the company. From kind of when you think about it, like are we at that kind of stage? Is is public perception so bad that some kind of like execution needs to occur? I mean, because that's kind of what happened to Forstall, right? No, they, no, they kind nope. of they. I mean, just saying, uh-huh. like that's kind of what they did to him. And but, N- you know, uh, hmm. we're not at that stage. Oh, first off, I don't think a public execution of somebody, firing of somebody to solve a problem is ever, ever solves a problem. Oh, I'm not saying it, it solved the problem, but like just from like, nope. they did it, right? They they well, kind of yeah. were like, you know, they had to make a big apology for maps and then Forstall was ousted. So, yeah, you, you I don't believe that that's what happened. Okay. I, but bo- bottom line, I don't, I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened is that they wanted to get rid of Scott Forstall 
because of lots of reasons. And then if you believe the reports, he was asked to publicly apologize or whatever for maps and refused. And at that point, they're like, we really got to get rid of this guy. And they got rid of him. Maybe my memory is a little bit wrong on that one. I I don't think Apple sacrificed Scott Forstall in order to uh, because there was a maps debacle, I think Apple maybe used the maps thing as the last straw or whatever to just get rid of a guy they wanted to get rid of. But my my read on that is you get rid of somebody like Scott Forstall because you know Tim Cook or other people around at the senior levels have decided that they don't want to work with that guy anymore. And so there's a power move and he's out. And I think that's what happened. So I, I think this is, um, you know, I... I don't think this is like that at all. I think this is stuff that emerges from having a complicated 10-year-old, longer in many cases, uh, code base for your operating system and a huge platform and trying to scale. Uh, and it's a very hard problem, as uh, Sanofsky pointed out, and that they have to be better and they have to make changes. And the challenge with some of this stuff is we can't see the changes. We've said it all along. Apple's hardware is way ahead of their software right now. And they need to do better. So, you know, ultimately, I don't think there's anything we can see from the outside that will let us know whether there are particular people at Apple who are doing a bad job or whether this is a uh, more about culture and uh, is a more systemic problem. And so, you know, I can't say anything about Craig Federighi. For all I know, Craig Federighi is the guy who has been trying to get people to change the way Apple does software for ages and nobody's listened to him. Or perhaps he's the one who's been standing in the way and has been the impediment uh, and is has, you know, has had to be told to change. Or perhaps it's way more complicated and it's somewhere in the middle. I don't know. I honestly don't know. But my gut feeling is it's a huge organization and it's probably a lot of it is cultural, like of having and changing cultures is hard. As somebody who had to change a mag, a print magazine culture and try to drag them into uh, the web, you know, even when you get everybody to agree, everybody agrees and then they go back to their desk and then and proceed to do what they always did without changing anything. Mm-hmm. That just that is human nature. So I think and the more and that was just a small magazine staff like this is an enormous software effort. It's a huge deal. It, and so that's my gut feeling about this is that they're trying to change the culture. They're trying to find ways to do things differently so that they can alter how they put their software together in order to um, to pr- reduce some of the problems that everybody who's out here using their software has noticed. I'd just like to state for the record that I don't think that Craig Federighi should be publicly fired. Uh, I'm merely asking the questions today because I see people talk about this a lot, right? That like because of these bug problems oh, sure. that Tim Cook needs to resign or Craig Federighi needs to leave or uh, yeah. Eddie Q needs to be fired. Like We spoke about this a while ago on Connected about like, oh, should Eddie Q be fired because of X? And the answer that we came to was no, that's silly, right? Like it's not how this stuff works. Exactly um, right. But people, you know, it, it's something that happens in the press and yeah. with fans of things. It happens in sports too. It's the same way. It happens in lots of other areas. I would, my advice to anybody out there who reads anybody who says the solution to this is this person that needs to be fired and the person saying it has no, you know, doesn't actually work at that company and doesn't know anything about them is I wouldn't pay attention to it because like that's, that's just somebody reacting emotionally from a position of uh, zero knowledge. 
and they're just you know the, you always find well I only know the names of four people at Apple and this is the name of the person who's attached to software and I have a bug that makes me angry so he should be fired but the, and, the reason uh, that I brought up Scott Forstall <laughs> in that question is I think that that is what people point to right that they're like well they did it before you know like I think that is an example that people use and and I, I think that's not accurate. I think that I, I here's the parallel I would make, which is I get this sense that Forstall had a, a did not fit what he believed was not a cultural fit for what a bunch of other leaders at Apple believed. After Steve and Jobs, so and so after Steve Jobs died, so they made a change. So what I would say about somebody like Craig Federighi, and this is just completely theoretical, is if Apple decided culturally that um, that. Craig Federighi was the impediment to Apple changing its approach with software and uh, making it making it uh, better in this way that he believed it was the wrong approach and pushed back on it. And everybody else who had power within Apple believed it was the right approach. Then he would leave. Right. He would either leave or he would be fired because he would be standing in the way of what uh, they wanted to do. Uh, but there's no evidence that that's true. Right. Like my guess is that he it's more likely that he either um, is supportive of this or realizes that the way that they thought they should do software isn't working and they need to make changes, which is what I think any good manager should be doing is always paying attention to what they're doing and finding out how can we do this better. So that's, that's my gut feeling about this is that I, I think it's rare that you get in a situation where somebody just stands up and, and, and says, uh, no, you'll have to, you'll have to fire me <laughs> more, more likely it's, you know, is this person a cultural fit or is this person working against us? Or there's a power struggle of some kind. Um, and I, I don't get any sense of that now. I, I get the sense that Apple software organization is recognizing like Steven Sanofsky says that there are issues and that they have to change huge processes in order to be better. So Mark Gurman's article is very good. It's almost classic. Mark Gurman reporting um, because there's a lot of really interesting little details, including pretty detailed lists of what's in and what's out for iOS 12 and what might be held off to iOS 13. So I recommend that people go read the article, but there was one part that I wanted to just get your take on, which is that uh, Mark Gurman reports that new iPad features, including like multiple instances of applications running side by side, will be held off now until 2019 to make sure that it's done right. And I wanted to see what your opinion of that was. Well, this is the classic uh, thing with stories like this. And this is what I've been saying all along about human nature, which is we all want Apple to slow down and not do as many new features in order to not have bugs and <laughs> yeah, unreliability. We want new features all the time, though, don't but we? we? <laughs> but we want new features. Absolutely. And I will guarantee you that the same people who write screaming, panicky stories about how Apple software quality is terrible and look at this latest bug and you know all of that will write stories saying when iOS 12 is announced – saying, yawn, Apple announces boring operating system update with no good new features. Same people will say the same things. And those are contrary, right? Those, those you, can't, you can't actually do both. I think as a user of Apple's products, it's okay to want both, right? Like, I think it's okay to want it, but I also think that maybe you just don't get upset if one goes awry for a bit like i think it's fine you know because they've set our expectations at this point right like of 
new whiz bang things every single year and and if that slows down a little bit right like i think that it's okay for people to be like oh man it's not as good as it used to be but to kind of then just try and get used to it is my feeling on this yeah i mean it people look people want all sorts of things they can't have <laughs> so this is the this is the truth of it is it's okay to want everything and not pay for anything but in reality you can't like, so i'm totally fine if there's going to be really great iPad features next year. So that means that at that point, history will then show every two years you get really good iPad features. The only thing that I want from iOS 12 then is something that I didn't feel like we got in iOS 10 10, was refinement and slight improvements to the stuff introduced in iOS 11. So like, I would like to see that... We don't just wait two years for everything iPad. Like that, they will make some tweaks, maybe in some some polish and some refinement to what we got last year, this year, and then big new features the year after that. I think that's actually one of the strongest arguments about Apple slowing down its software process a little bit. Is if you observe what Apple does, a lot of what it does with, with software is throw out a big new thing and then walk away for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then make major changes. Like, it seems like in a lot of cases, Apple's development is, again, I can't say what the inside is actually like, but it sure seems like the incentive is placed on the big splash and not on incremental change. Now, that's not universal. Every group is different because clearly the people working on Logic and Final Cut are doing incremental change. Like they keep releasing new versions with bug fixes and refinements throughout the year. And it's great. But there are other apps that we all know or segments of the system where it ships and then literally nothing changes for two years. And I would much rather, honestly, Apple take a little more time so that they can ship something and then refine it a little bit. And that's less exciting than a brand new feature. But having a feature that worked okay for six months suddenly work great for the next year, that's good. So I would endorse that too. And that's, again, going to be less exciting than a whizzy new feature, but maybe makes you happier about using your Apple product. So I think that it's going to be telling uh, this year. I'm interested to see how the next couple of years go. I mean, what I would honestly like to see is a kind of flip-flop between iPhone and iPad, and that's kind of a way that you do your two-year, right? Like, iPhone, iPad, iPhone, iPad, year over year. That's what I would love to see as an iPad user, but I'm keen to see how this goes. Like, there will always be new features, um, and I guess it's just about how they get implemented and refined over time, and that's how we'll see if there is any truth to this, I guess, or if we'll see how it actually performs. Because there is always the risk that the exact same thing that happens now will happen then, but it's on a two-year cycle instead of a one-year cycle, right? Like, is still a cycle, and do you end up in time with the exact same problems? And it's only a small, short-term fix. We'll wait and see. Yeah, but we, we yeah, and we may never know. I mean, that's the truth of it: is we may never. If Apple suddenly has fewer bugs, did this solve it, or did they get lucky and they were just unlucky before? Like, if if the, our favorite feature isn't included, would it have been, or would it not have been? We won't know, <laughs> other than maybe secret Mark Gurman sources telling us things. And so, and and it will take time. So it's frustrating for people who want immediate uh, answers about, well, did it happen? Did they win? Did we lose? What happened? We may not know. 
but yeah, go go read Gomez uh, report. There's some there's some really interesting little tidbits in there. Um, we're going to move into hashtag Ask Upgrade now, but I want to thank our sponsor, final sponsor of this week, and that is Smile with PDF Pen. PDF Pen equips you with everything that you need for more powerful PDF editing. It's the ultimate tool for editing PDFs and going paperless. It is time to get your documents in order, and with PDF Pen, you can do that. You'll be able to split and combine PDF documents to send just the right things to the people who need them. You'll be able to fill in PDF forms over there interactive or not pdf pen doesn't care it will just take care of it you can even add page numbers redact account information or even perform ocr on scanned documents so you're able to use the text in other places and if you're looking for something in particular you can find and highlight all instances of a specific term and when pdfs need that little small tweak that little fix like correcting a typo for example you can use pdf pen to sort that out inside of the pdf even if you didn't create it, it's wonderful. It's so handy. It saves you from needing to create an entirely new PDF. You don't have to use a Word document or anything like that. It's truly wonderful. And the new PDF Pen 3 is tailor-made for iOS 11 as well. So you can get those great benefits of PDF Pen no matter where you are. And then you can also get the option to step up to PDF Pen Pro if you want to create PDF portfolios and so many more huge features for those PDF pros out there. If you've been thinking about trying out PDF Pen, now is the time to do it. They've added over 100 enhancements with their most recent release on the Mac. Get organized this year. Go to smilesoftware.com slash podcast to see where PDF Pen can take you and what it can do for you. And make sure that you tell them that you heard about the PDF Pen from Upgrade uh, when you check out. Thank you so much to PDF Pen from Smile for their support of this show. All right, Mr. Jason Snell, it's time for hashtag ask upgrade. So uh, first question is from Andrew. Andrew wants to know, how do you avoid talking over each other on Skype when recording a podcast? So I'll get a little secret for you, Andrew. It's a good we do question, it constantly. Andrew. Oh, we you do. just did it to me then. See, I'm gonna, this is what the show would sound like if I didn't edit it. Uh, we edit those out. So when me and Jason talk over each other, we edit it out. Me and Jason yep. are particularly bad at this. For two reasons. Uh Uh, One reason is there is a bigger delay in Skype between me and Jason because of how far we are are away from each other. So there is more of a delay. Uh, Jason is consistently talking over me now just to give you that full experience. Um, The other thing is me and Jason both suffer from the editor's dilemma in that we are both editors of the shows that we produce. So (laughs) if... If we are speaking and the other person starts speaking, what will typically happen is we both complete our entire sentences knowing that the editor will fix it. Is that fair to say? I know I do this, and I feel like you probably do the same, right? We just finish the points. I think that happens. Um, a lot of times what happens is that I've got one more point to make, and because there's a little bit of a lag and you are, you know, it's your job on this podcast to sort of move us on to the next topic. I think the most common one is that you start doing a transition to the next topic and I have one last thing to say. And by the time I get that out, you've already started talking and then you have to stop. And that happens a lot. And that has to do with the delay and also just the way it's it's structured. I, you can't see me wa- raising my hand or something like that. And, and that all just gets gets taken out but yes it does happen too that i was uh listening to a a director talking about um the difference between directing and editing and what they said was that there's none and that the idea is that when you're shooting you are thinking about how you what you shoot gets edited 
And um, that is true, right? And so when we do podcasts, I think there's, to a certain degree, there's that too, because we know how it will come out in the end. And so you just roll with it. And I, I find that actually when we're recording podcasts a lot um, with other people where they like, they stop and then apologize and then say, well, what I was going to say is, and then they continue. And I can tell when it's somebody who is a lot of experience and probably editing podcasts as well, because they know not to do that because it'll just get edited out. It's fine. Just, you know, keep going. And the next question comes from Robin. Uh, with series apparent AI shortcomings surfacing again, for how long do you think Apple will keep adding small inter? Uh, small in, in improvements uh, to Siri before going for a major overhaul from the ground up. Is that even a realistic scenario to be hoping for at this point? So, do you think that Siri's gonna they're gonna keep adding incremental improvements to Siri, kind of year on year, or do you think at some point they're just gonna rebuild it? I hate to give this answer, but I don't know enough about how Siri is built to answer it. I think I think Apple does improve Siri incrementally. But unless I knew how it was made, I can't say whether it whether the best thing for them is going to be to do a, a teardown and an overhaul or whether that is unrealistic and that the way they are going to do all Siri improvements is by swapping in and out little blocks. The beauty of Siri as a service is it's in the cloud like they can just change it all the time. Mm-hmm. And it gets, and it should be able to get better all the time. Uh, what Amazon does is like have you sign up for a newsletter, and every week they tell you what they've added to Alexa. And um, Apple doesn't do that with Siri, so it it's uh, they don't communicate what's going on with Siri as much. But um, I hope they just keep iterating. I hope they just keep on cranking out new versions with new improvements all the time. That's what I want to see, and then just have Siri get better. So next question from Kyle. How do you decide between taking notes on your iPad with your Apple Pencil and using a real pen and notebook? Uh, I like the idea of nice pen and paper, but also the idea of having everything saved and synced digitally. So I'm just going to take this one, Jason. Yeah, this uh, one's you. Yep. Um, So my feeling is just about, honestly, like, do I need this in other places? So if I'm, for example, taking a call where I feel like I'm going to need some notes that I might want to easily get to later, I will use my Apple Pencil because then I use an app called Notability for this mostly, and then it will be on my iPhone, it will be on my other iPads, it's easy to get to. Um, If I'm just kind of on a call which is not that important, or I'm just kind of taking some quick notes for something or scribbling something or just trying to get some thoughts kind of crystallized, then I'll mostly use pen and paper for that because it's not that important for me to get to that data later on. So it's purely a case of do I think I'm going to need this again? And if the answer is yes, then I will use my Apple Pencil for that. Okay, Dave asks, do you think sound engineers will craft specific mixes for the HomePod to maximize the impact of its spatial processing? Um, my gut answer is I sure hope not. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> Why I is think, that? Why is that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's well, first off, the HomePod is... Um, you know, pro- doing all that processing. So I guess what you're really saying is, do you keep like playing your music on the HomePod t- until you- it sounds really good and then you release it for that? But it's a, it's mono and does it-, it-, it, bottom line is if the HomePod is a wildly successful product and it is the biggest way that everybody listens to music in their homes, then maybe. 
but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, it would need to be successful enough for people to start auditioning their music on a HomePod to make sure it also sounds good on HomePod, but I don't think that's going to happen. And the problem is it's uh, it's software, so Apple can change how the HomePod processes audio whenever it wants with software updates. So I don't think it would be wise either. So I, But I don't think it will happen. And Matthew asked, why do you think that HomePod can't make FaceTime audio calls? Um, well, it kind of can, right? Like you just have to start them on your phone first. Am I right in that? Yeah, you can't initiate calls from of any kind from the HomePod, which I don't understand why that's true. If you can have it do messages, but you can't and, initiate I mean, calls. I could do that on my iPad. Like I can make FaceTime calls or phone calls i should say from my yes. ipad because it yeah, just from, uses the from phone my mac yeah i can do that from my mac too so why not from the home pod and i guess maybe just not ready um or maybe they are holding that because they want to have that when the home pod's more capable of understanding different people with different identities if they're working on something for that with different apple ids but it's frustrating the fact that you've got some data that's coming from the phone and requires you to have your phone present but then something like this it's what we said last week which is i kind of want the home pod to act like uh my phone does in my car and it doesn't there are a lot of these things that it just won't it won't do like kicking off a a call hands free and lastly today kapila wants to know what are your favorite things to eat that have ginger in them I like this question. It was so specific. Uh, I enjoyed it. So, Jason, what do you like to eat that has ginger in? Well, I like everything with ginger in it. So I find it very hard to choose. The things I like most with ginger in them uh, are ginger. So okay. candied ginger, mm. pickled ginger. Okay. I like both of those. Those are amazing. Okay. I like ginger beer and ginger ale. I like ginger cookies. I like... Uh, ginger, I don't even know. Like, I like it in everything. I basically like it in everything. So I, I don't know if I could even pick a thing. I like it. There's a there's a marinade that we make that has ginger, ground ginger in it. Um, at Christmas, I make ginger cookies and gingerbread and ginger cake and things like that. It's just, it's it's the best. I love it. I picked two very specific things that are my favorite things to eat that have ginger in them. I love ginger like you do. I don't know if it's as much, but like everything that you listed, I love all of those things. Um, but my two favorite things of ginger in are the ginger molasses cookie that you can get from Blue Bottle. Right, which I make every every uh, holiday because yeah. I yeah, have that you make recipe. Them too. It's great. But they are mm. wonderful. I There is nothing in this world so simple that I love more than getting a New Orleans coffee from Blue Bottle whenever I'm in New York or San Francisco. And I believe they are opening one in San Jose. I hope that it's open before WWDC. It made me very happy, even though social policy was great. Uh, I do love these things. So it's a New Orleans coffee, which is their iced coffee, with the ginger molasses cookie from Blue Bottle. They're fantastic. My other thing is chicken teriyaki. I make a very good chicken teriyaki, um, and ginger is one of the key components for the teriyaki sauce. So there you go. Yes. If I had to pick, it would be, and again, this is not something with ginger in them, it would be candied ginger and pickled ginger. Um, I just would eat those and do eat those just straight up. Mm, Good stuff. 
So that's it. If you want to send in questions uh, for us at the end of the show, you can always use the hashtag AskUpgrade for that. Uh, with the exception of Kapila's question, as you can tell, Ask Upgrade questions tend to be more technical. But every now and then, I like to end on a food question, uh, typically because we record this show at my dinner time. So uh-huh. I get really hungry, and I figure that, you know, I like to end on some food questions to go set me up to make myself something to eat. So that's that. Uh, if you want to find our show notes for this week, you can go to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 181. Thanks again to PDF Pens, Squarespace, and Linode for their support of this show. You can find Jason's work at sixcolors.com and theincomparable.com for his uh, pop culture podcasts. And Jason hosts many shows about tech and creativity and working and space at Relay FM. You can go to relay.fm slash shows where you can find a list of all of the great products that we have available to you, um, including my new show, Playing for Fun, which I would really love if you could check out. Uh, We'll be back next week. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snow. Goodbye, Mike Hurley.